All right, so Matthew 14, starting from verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. Well, good morning, everybody. We come this morning to a big moment in the Gospel of Matthew. There are three reasons it's big. First, because it's a big moment for Matthew's story. It is a turning point in the narrative. And it's always important to remember that Matthew is not simply recounting a series of incidents 
or a collection of stories that he's kind of putting side by side, the way you might put together a scrapbook or a photo album after a holiday, he is, he's actually telling one story from beginning to end, and it's very carefully planned and deliberate in the way he does that. So look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So there's the link, there's the context for our passage this morning. This is how this section that we just read fits into the bigger story that Matthew is telling us. So what is it that Jesus has heard? Well, that is referring back to verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. Herod, the local ruler, had heard reports about Jesus, concluding that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. It was Herod himself who had killed John for speaking the word of God to him, which Matthew then explains in a kind of flashback in 3 to 12. And so what Jesus heard in verse 13 is not the death of John, that had happened some time ago, but the connection that Herod had made between himself and John. As we saw last week, and as Nathan reminded us earlier, John's violent death is a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death, that dreadful moment to which this whole story is heading, the dreadful moment when Jesus will die on the cross, which he knows he is coming and for which he has come into the world. So verse 13 gives us the link to all of that. It reminds us that in the bigger story that Matthew is telling, there is a story of hostility to God's messengers, a hostility that will climax in the cross, that supreme act of human hostility, which at the same time is a supreme act of God's revelation. So that is what is looming in the background. That's the first reason this is big. It's a turning point in the narrative. The second reason this is big is because it's big for Jesus. It's a big moment. The miracles recorded here are big, aren't they? These incidents, Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's the only miracle apart from the resurrection that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And Jesus walking on water, almost the definition of an impossible thing, these are among the most famous and memorable stories in the Bible. You might be very new to Christian things, and if you are, you're, you're so welcome. It's so great to have you here looking at the Bible with us. But I'd imagine many people here will have at least come across these stories before. They are the stuff of stained glass windows. They're Sunday school staples. Others of us might be very familiar with these events, but they are meant to blow our minds. They're meant to burst our preconceptions about Jesus. Just glance back at 1352, where he promised that those who understood him will be like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And what this passage ought to do for us, whether you've heard it a thousand times before or this is the first time, that is what this passage is supposed to do. Here is a glimpse of a new thing something that has never been seen before, but as we're going to see, it's based on an old thing. Here is a glimpse of Jesus, who couldn't be bigger than the baby in the manger at Christmas. He is big, really big. And therefore, thirdly, it's a big moment for the disciples. See, these 12 men 
one of whom, remember, was Matthew himself, who is telling this account. These 12 men are always listening, watching, responding. Look at what Jesus had said to them back in 13, 16, 17. He says this to them. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see. So in terms of the story the Bible is telling, here is something of a climax. Here is a key moment. These men are with Jesus and they are receiving revelation. More and more revelation as Jesus peels back the layers of mystery and reveals himself more and more clearly. And yet here's the great surprise. Despite everything they have seen, this great privileged first-hand account, look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 31. O you of little faith. Verse 31 why are you still doubting? Or fifteen sixteen, if you just glance over there, why are they still dull, literally, without understanding? And yet, back in 1332, look at where they end up. Bowing down in clear-eyed recognition, truly, you are the son of the living God. And so I want to suggest that while these famous miracles are big, and we're going to see just how big they are, the really big miracle we're going to see this morning is not the one we might be expecting. It's actually the miracle that turns the disciples' fear to faith, that turns their blindness to sight, their unbelief to doubt, sorry, their unbelief to belief, their doubt to assurance. That is the miracle. It is the gracious, powerful work of God that leads to verse 32. And you know what that means for us? It means that this could be a big moment for us too. If we can see what they saw, if we can hear what they heard right now this morning, then that same miracle can take place today in this room as God gives us the miracle of faith, as he gives us belief, as he gives us assurance so that we might confess of Jesus, truly, you are the Son of God. Well, I don't know about you, but I want that to happen. But we're going to need God's help. So let's pray again for God's help as we turn to his word. Let's just pray for a moment. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we turn to your precious word, we get to see what many prophets and righteous men and women long to see, but did not, and long to hear, but did not. So we ask in your mercy that you would open our eyes and ears soften our hearts so we might see Jesus and believe. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's look at the passage under the three headings you'll see on the sheet. Firstly, the compassion and power of Jesus. I wonder if you notice, as Joe read, that the two great miracles are bracketed 
by these little sections in 13 and 14 and 34 to 36, which concern healing. Look at the first one, 13 to 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, this is what commentators call a summary statement, which is one of those comments that makes you yawn and skip over it and think there's not much worth seeing. After all, we have seen Jesus heal before, haven't we? Here is more of the same. It's on a general scale. There's no individuals mentioned. There's no dialogue, no close-ups, just this kind of vast, nameless crowd of needy humanity pursuing Jesus around the lake, denying him the solitude he is seeking. The same is true of the second bracket at the end of the section, 34 to 36. And so we might look at these two summary statements and say, well, there's nothing new. But not so fast. The question we always need to ask is why? Why does Matthew put this here? And I take it that Matthew is not just filling his word count for his dissertation. He's not just kind of stuck this in to fill a space. Well, notice that each of these brackets gives us a slightly different focus. In the first, do you notice that Jesus' compassion is highlighted, verse 14. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. Remember, Jesus is seeking solitude. We'll find out later that that is so he can pray. And therefore, it is a little bit annoying. It's a little bit inconvenient that these people keep showing up. He grows across the lake to find solitude. The crowd pursue him around the lake on foot and meet him there. It's slightly frustrating, isn't it? But how does he react? Well, when he sees the crowd, he sees people. He sees God's image bearers with their almost infinite needs. He sees the blind, the lame, the sick, the crippled, the broken body, the broken hearted, the lonely, the burdened, the anxious. He sees not an inconvenience, but the unending sadness of God's creatures struggling and stumbling to live in a broken world. And he has compassion on them. He cares about their needs. He is bothered about this. And I don't know about you, when you see endless human need, you may have compassion as well. Maybe you've been to a part of the world where the human need is particularly apparent, and you may feel this same compassion. But alongside the compassion, there's a helplessness, isn't there? Because you can't fix the problem. But Jesus can do something about it. So look at the next little bracket and see Matthew's focus there. Verse 34, when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. See Matthew's focus here in the first bracket, the focus is on Jesus' compassion. The second bracket, it's on his astonishing power. So that people just had to come and touch the edge of his cloak. And whatever they were suffering would be sorted. And so here is Jesus with not just the compassion that, that we can associate with, not just power that you sometimes see in the world, 
But this beautiful balance of the two, this combination of compassion and power with which he meets the infinite human need of frailty and suffering tirelessly. He is able and he's willing. As we sometimes sing, he is strong and kind. What a beautiful combination. But you know, I reckon that there were some people in that crowd who were just on the edge of working something out when they saw that. Yes, of course, some of them, perhaps most of them, were there because they wanted something from Jesus. They wanted him to do something for them, but I think there were some in the crowd who would have just been on the edge of working something out deeper. Something tremendously important and exciting, something that if true would overturn their world, not just for that moment, but forever. I think there would be some among the crowd who were wondering whether this was the new built on the old. Whether before their eyes, the old promises of God, the long-awaited promises, the long-forgotten promises were finally coming true. I wonder if some of them might have had, for example, the words of Isaiah 35 in their minds, be strong, do not fear, your God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. I wonder if some of them had perhaps in the back of their minds Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wine. On this mountain, he'll destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace from his people. I wonder if some of them who knew their Bibles and took God at his word when they saw what Jesus was doing, said to themselves, could this be the long-awaited shepherd king, the saviour of mankind? Not just a medicine man, but the son of God. Could this be not just a, a red-letter day when I get my sickness cured, but the beginning of a whole new world, a foretaste of a kingdom of compassion and power. A kingdom where the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame leap like the deer, where no one is hungry or brokenhearted, where there will be no crying or tears or sickness or mourning or death. Could this be it? Well, if they're asking that question, their suspicions are about to be confirmed in the most astonishing way. Look at the next section, compassion and power in salvation. Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, in one sense, this is completely understandable. The people were hungry. They'd walked a long way around the lake to get there, they would have to make the return journey. It's getting late. There's no McDonald's around the corner. You can see why the disciples are worried. No doubt their own stomachs are rumbling too. 
and just notice the numbers. We traditionally call this the feeding of the 5,000, but look at verse 21 where Matthew tells us, I think alone of, of the Gospels, he tells us that the headcount, the famous headcount of 5,000, that was just for men. The heads of families were the headcounts. And so with women and children included, we can estimate a, a, a crowd of between 10 or 20,000 people. That is almost, so you can picture it, almost four times the number that will fit in Morecambe FC Stadium. That's a, that's a lot of people, isn't it? But at the same time, the disciples' sensible and practical concern might just be a clue that they've not worked out what is happening. Verse 16, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And wouldn't you love to have seen the look on the disciples' faces when they replied, verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. wonder what their tone of voice was. Bemusement, I suspect. Is Jesus joking? You feed them. But it's a clue, isn't it, that the disciples are not quite there. They've not quite worked out what is happening. They've not quite worked out that they are in the presence of the Messiah, that the last days are upon them, that the messianic banquet is here. And so, as he keeps on doing, Jesus patiently, compassionately reveals even more revelation. And so we get to read these words. We receive it too. Verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, this is such a great miracle that over the years, all kinds of ideas have been put forward to rationalize it, to explain it. See, we come to this, most of us, through our Western post-enlightenment scientific worldview, don't we? Because, of course, we know that these things cannot happen. Even J.K. Rowling, in her world-building in Harry Potter, made it the case that you, you can't just create food. It's one of the laws of magic. Even powerful wizards can't create food, can they? This just doesn't happen. And so we have to find a way, don't we, in our scientific, rationalistic worldview of explaining this, because this can't happen. Oh, the one I remember being taught at school, it's a favorite of RE teachers, is that actually what happened was, if you just think about it, you know, actually everybody had some food in their rucksacks. This boy, who we find in a different gospel, brings forward his loaves and fish, and by sharing them, Jesus encourages everyone to share their pet lunches. And when that happens, there is enough to go around. It's a lovely idea, isn't it? It's a nice moral lesson. And actually, the lesson is that if we all shared, then world hunger would end. Another one, and I like this even more, is that Jesus, actually what happened is he divided the food into tiny, tiny little bits it's a sort of early communion meal. Everybody got this crumb, and so it became a symbolic meal. And as they took the crumb, they were feeding spiritually, and they were spiritually satisfied. But if you believe those explanations, actually, you'll believe anything, won't you? And personally, if I were given a crumb in that situation, in fact, there's so many people, it'd be like 
half a crumb, wouldn't it? It'd be a couple of atoms. I wouldn't feel spiritually satisfied. I'd feel pretty annoyed. I think I'd work out that Jesus is the biggest con artist ever to have lived. But look again at what Matthew actually records. Verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. It is a meal. It's not a symbolic meal. It's not a spiritual meal. It's a physical meal. It feeds hungry people. It is feeding a lot of people. And so for those with eyes to see, this miracle confirms that Jesus is not just a man of great power, but he is the man of of the promise, God's Messiah, that they were experiencing a foretaste. Yes, bread and fish can only be a foretaste, but a foretaste nonetheless of the messianic banquet, that he was a sign that not just their immediate hunger was going to be over, but eternal salvation had arrived. Because if they knew their Bibles, if they knew the old as well as the new, they would put the two and two together. Here was God giving bread in the desert. We're told, aren't we, it's a deserted place. Here is God doing what he did for the Israelites as they crossed the Red Sea on the way to the promised land. Here is the bread of heaven, the stuff of life. Here is the one who, if they follow him, will take them to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, where there will be life in abundance, life that never runs out. And in fact, as we look back on these events, we can see even more, can't we? We look back on these events, this side of the cross, and so we can see how Jesus himself, in his death, would break the power of death forever and so provide in himself, in his own body and blood, the stuff of life, bread of heaven, compassion and power in salvation. And so I wonder if it's just worth pausing there to reflect on the abundance of life that those who trust in Jesus enjoy. Would you call our society content right now? I would call it a society full of discontent. Everyone's on strike because they want more. Everyone's anxious because they don't feel they've got enough. Everyone is pushing and shoving to get their rights, their voice heard, get their way. But if you believe in Jesus, bread of heaven, eternal life, salvation, abundance, we have enough. Well, as I said, I suspect there were those in the crowds who were on the edge of working all of this out. But what about the disciples? What about those closest to him? the ones who actually got to feed the bread to the crowd and pick up the leftovers, what about them? Well, the answer to that question is really what Matthew is driving at in this section. So third section, compassion and power in Revelation. Notice how one story just flows into the next directly. Verse 22, immediately, 
Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up a mountainside by himself to pray. Only now do we see why he is craving this solitude. He wants to pray to his heavenly father. And when Jesus prays on his own in the Gospels, it's generally before a moment of great self-giving and revelation. And so here comes that moment. Verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so Matthew now turns his attention back to the disciples who've gone off in the boat on their own, and from now we are watching things from their point of view. He picks up the story when they're kind of in the middle of the lake. We're told that their passage was made harder by the wind and the waves. That word buffeted is literally the word tortured. And then in verse 25, we read that they were still laboring against the wind and the waves in the fourth watch of the night, which is between three and six in the morning. And so for these experienced Galilean fishermen, used to storms, I think we can say they're in trouble. It is at this point, in the dark, or perhaps with the first glimmer of dawn, after many, many hours of Struggling against the waves, tired, scared, in danger, something happens that they would never forget. Look at verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. As usual, in Matthew, there is no melodrama in the way he tells it, no embellishment, this is not Hollywood, there is no spooky music, no concentrated expression, no magic spell. Just a bare-bones description, Jesus walking on the lake as naturally as you or I might walk on the road. And it's new. This has never happened before. Unprecedented. Elisha... One of my favorite miracles in the Old Testament, he made an axe head float that had been lost in the River Jordan. A great miracle. But nothing like this has ever happened, which explains the disciples' very understandable reaction. Verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But remember 1352. To understand Jesus is to understand the new on the basis of the old. And so while there was no precedent for this, there was a way of understanding what was happening. It's very difficult, isn't it, when you're in the middle of the night on a lake in a boat and there's a human form coming towards you to get out your Old Testament and to think clearly but no doubt they would later. No doubt they would reflect on the old. They would have plenty of time to reflect and to work out what was actually happening here. And to remember that some of the most vivid descriptions of God and salvation in the Old Testament sounded very much like what they were going through now. 
Listen to Psalm 69, for example. David, save me, O God, from the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up. Or listen to Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Job 9.8. He who stretches out the heavens treads the waves of the sea. Or Psalm 77. Looking back on the great exodus, when God led his people through the sea, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Which is why Jesus says to them, verse 27, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. If they were in doubt, there could be no more doubt. Who is he? Who is this walking on the water, the one true God of creation in the flesh? Who else but the God who made the waves could walk on them? Who else would dare to use that Old Testament name for God, I am, verse 27? Here is the creator in charge of his creation. Here is the new Adam ruling God's world as he was always meant to do. And what has he come to do? To rescue his people to gather his church, not just to demonstrate acts of raw power, but to rescue them from slavery to death and chaos and disorder and take them safely into the promised land to gather them to be a people without fear. And so just like the feeding miracle, this is a sign, a sign that God's new world spoken of in Revelation 22 is without sea, without the chaos and disorder of sin has begun. And I wonder if you can see it. I wonder if you can see him and believe. Well, if that's not enough drama, there is one more twist. The surprise of the passage, this is the piece that only Matthew records. It turns out That after all this, there is someone in the boat who still doubts. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter says, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. What are we to make of this? It is tempting It is understandable to see Peter as a model of faith here. Stepping out of the boat seems like a great act of faith, doesn't it? Yes, he took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink, but the stepping out of the boat seems like something we should congratulate Peter for, that we should emulate Peter for. He was a man of great faith to step out of the boat. But if you look at it, I don't think that's right. In fact, I think that is to miss the, the, the point of the whole passage. I want to suggest that actually Peter is anything but a model of faith. Because look again at the reason. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter, 
still does not believe in Jesus Christ. He is not yet falling on his feet to worship the Son of you, if it's you, he says. Even though he is staring God in the face, God coming to him in the storm, he still needs more revelation. Getting out of the boat is not an act of faith, it's an act of doubt. He is testing God. Which is why Jesus says to him in verse 31, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Not why are you sinking, but why did you get out of the boat? After all you've seen, you still need more revelation. You've seen the king of creation creating bread. You've seen the Lord of the sea walking on water. You've seen the new Adam, the son of God, the king of the last days coming to you from the storm. And no one on the face of the earth has seen more. And yet still Peter does not believe. Still he is of little faith. But here's the thing. Here is the real twist for us. The little faith is enough faith. Verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began sinking and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And I've no doubt, perhaps later on, Peter would have reflected on Isaiah 25, after speaking of the great banquet of the kingdom, in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. But you're not so clear-headed when you're sinking in the lake. Instead, we read verse 32, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In other words, there is an even greater miracle in this passage than the miracle of the feeding or walking on the, on the water. And it's the miracle that you see in verse 32 and 33. The miracle of blind people finally seeing, of the doubters finally having faith, of even small faith being enough because it's not their faith that saves them. It's Jesus Christ, God of compassion and power. Well, in conclusion, I want to draw out three implications for us from this. There's some meaty stuff here I think we can talk about over coffee, over lunch, in small groups through the week. And I want to suggest that if you've been particularly struck by anything you've heard this morning or want to chat with somebody or pray with them, uh, then one or two of us will just be hanging around here at the front uh, or is this the back? I can never quite work out which is the front, which is the back. But one of the two of us will be hanging around here. And if you want to come and have a chat uh, or pray with somebody uh, and talk about these things further, uh, then we can do that. Uh, but otherwise, hopefully, we're going to have plenty to think about as we head into the week. Three implications. First, I want to speak directly to you if you are not a believer, if you are not a convinced disciple of Jesus. 
If you could not yet in your heart of hearts bow down and worship Jesus and say, truly, you are the Son of God. I want to ask you to think very clearly and honestly with yourself about the reason that you do not yet believe. And I want to ask you to think clearly and honestly with yourself about what it would take for you to become a Christian. What would it take for you to believe? What would convince you to follow Jesus? I wonder if you do feel that there is just not enough evidence. Maybe you realize that you are part of that kind of, I suppose, rationalist mindset that I mentioned before, that you take a scientific approach to the questions of life. And therefore, if you could see with your own eyes, then you would believe. But you're not going to believe otherwise. Well, what does this passage say to you? Well, I want to suggest that it does actually give you every reason for believing. Why do I say that? Because we're reading eyewitness accounts here, aren't we? See, these words of Matthew have come down to us over the centuries. And it's clear as we read it that we're not reading a myth or a legend. We're not reading a kind of a moral tale. We're not reading the kernel of truth that's been distorted and embellished by the church. We are looking, in fact, and it's self-evident that we are, a reliable historical account, such that if we'd been there, we would have seen these things too. How do we know that? What's the, well, have a look. There's all sorts of details that Matthew mentions that he doesn't need to mention. We're told how Jesus traveled, how the crowds traveled to the other side, verse 13. We're given the time of day and the location, verse 15. We're told exactly how much food there is, what type of food is available. Notice in verse 19, that little detail about the grass. Why is that there? Interestingly, the other accounts mention the grass in different contexts as well. One of them mentions that it's green. Another mentions that it's Passover. Another mentions the place, Bethsaida, which is a deserted place. So you put those things together. Passover's in spring. Grass grows in the spring in a desert place. It's the only time it could have been green grass in Bethsaida. You put these together. And then we're given the numbers, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men, 12 baskets. Even the little word basket is the exact right kind of basket they would have used in that region. And these details are there, not because they've been made up. You would never make them up. If this were a myth or a legend, like sort of George and the Dragon kind of myth, you wouldn't add those kind of details, would you? If you read those kinds of myths, you don't read that George you know, slew the dragon on the green grass. It doesn't work like that. It's not that kind of literature. Because we're reading an eyewitness account. It's real. It really happened. So you have to deal with the fact that you live in a world where Jesus Christ fed 5,000 men. Whatever your mindset is, scientific, you have to deal with the fact that you live in a world in which Jesus Christ has walked on water. If you're going to be honest with yourself, if you're going to be true, if you're going to have some integrity about this inquiry, you live in a world where Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what are you going to do about it? 
I want to suggest you have every reason to believe. And if you've heard this part of God's word this morning, it can be said of you, what Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 13, that you have heard and seen what many prophets and righteous men longed to but did not. And so I want to suggest and encourage you that you do know enough, you've seen enough, To bow down and worship Jesus would be the most scientific, most rational, the most logical thing you can do. Secondly, I want to address anyone here this morning who has doubts, which I reckon will be many of us from time to time. It may be that you're not yet a Christian believer, and the reason is not so much because you don't feel you've got the evidence, because you don't feel you've got enough faith. Maybe you look at your Christian friends and almost envy them, that sort of quality of faith that they have, to believe things that you find unbelievable. Or maybe you are a Christian this morning, but you do just find yourself from time to time wavering in your conviction. Maybe you can feel more and more sympathy with those voices that question whether this really can be true. And maybe hand in hand with that, there's a certain looking back to the life that you had before you became a Christian. Maybe you find yourself slightly anxious in in your most honest moments as you're lying in bed. You think about death and you think about eternity. And as you contemplate this, you're not completely sure that Jesus can save you. That he can actually take you through death into eternity utterly safely. And some of us I know have those thoughts. And some of us I know lie awake at night, anxious, even despairing, at those dark thoughts. And if that's you, I want to point you very clearly to Jesus' compassion and power to Peter. Lord, save me, Peter says, even though he doubts, even though he has little faith. And Jesus not only gives him more revelation, but he gives him salvation. Jesus does not wait until Peter has great faith. He saves him with little faith. And that is tremendously important for us to grasp. See, one of the things we believe as a church is a slogan that came out of the 16th century Reformation. Salvation by faith alone. You heard that? Salvation by faith alone. It's true. What that means is that it's not your good works. It's not your religious practice that saves you. It's faith in God that saves you. This is what Martin Luther rediscovered. It's what Paul taught in Romans 3, as some of our students have recently seen. It is part of evangelical belief. Salvation by faith alone. But at the same time, faith can't save you. Jesus saves you. And what this means is don't put your faith in your faith. 
but put it in Jesus. Don't look at your own heart or your convictions. What a waste of time that is. All you'll find is muddle and doubt in most of our hearts. Don't bother about that. Don't worry about how much faith you've got. You've all got faith in something. Look at him. Look at him. Let me illustrate this. Just look back at that little second bracket in 3436 and think about those people who brought their sick to touch the edge of Jesus' cloak. And I wonder if you'll just allow me a bit of, uh, what's the word, poetic license, to imagine the different degrees of faith that were going on in that situation. So here is young Benjamin persuading his grandfather Reuben to go and get his chronic arthritis cured. Grandfather, there's a man I've heard about who can cure your arthritis. All you have to do is touch the edge of his cloak. Will you come with me? And Reuben says, yeah, sure, sounds fantastic, let's go. But here is Mary persuading her stubborn-minded and skeptical daughter who has had a, a withered hand from birth. You know, Ruth, I've heard about this man. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? But apparently he can, he can cure things like this. All you have to do is touch the edge of his cloak. Let's go. And Ruth says, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. But just to get you off my back, I'll come along and I'll touch the edge of his cloak. Now, which of those two will be saved? Which would be healed? Both, of course, because it's Jesus that saves. And what we keep seeing is Jesus' compassion on those who have little faith. As long as they don't reject him, like the people at Nazareth, he keeps showing them more and more and more until eventually the great moment of revelation comes in his death on the cross and his resurrection and there is no longer any need to doubt. And therefore, there's a warning here as well as an encouragement, isn't there? The encouragement is to keep listening to the word, to keep being among God's people, to come to Jesus and say, Lord, save me, and he will. To say with a man in Mark 24, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a great prayer that is. And if we keep coming to Jesus, we keep listening to him. In his power and compassion, he will give us more. It's encouragement as we do the work of ministry. Great to hear from the trainees, the Bible studies going on all over the place in this church. As we do the work of ministry, the way we're going to do it is bring people face to face with the word of God. We can't persuade people to believe. But there's a warning too, isn't there? The worst thing you can do if you doubt is to stop listening, to cut yourself off from the word. The worst possible thing you can do. But if you keep listening, Jesus will give us assurance. He can give us assurance. So we can say with Paul in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, 
I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he able, is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. So if you find yourself in those dark moments, lying in bed, thinking about eternity, thinking about death, wondering, is Jesus able to save me? Lord, save me. I'm drowning. You have little faith. And he'll, and he'll save you. Look at Jesus. Don't put faith in your faith, but in him. And therefore, the third and final implication is that if you are a convinced Christian this morning, if you do believe, if you do have that blessing of assurance, blessed assurance, if you do not doubt, if you know, as Jesus says in John 5, that you have heard his word and believed and will not be condemned, you have crossed over from death to life, then here is the implication for you to be thankful and humbled by that great blessing. See, how did you come by that state? Is it because of your great faith, your intelligence, your integrity, your diligence? Is it because you're, you just, you've just grown accustomed to it that you almost treat belief as yours by right? No, 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 no. This passage reminds us that no one can believe without the gracious intervention of God. Even Peter couldn't believe. After everything he had seen, even the face, in the face of drowning, Jesus had to save him from his own belief. You see, the fact is we are so dull, we are so blind, our eyes are so cast down on the world, our hearts are so inwardly curved in on ourselves, we are so blinded by the devil and sin that we could never muster up faith to save us. Even when we know we are perishing, even when we know we are but a step between life and death, we need a great miracle to give us faith. And so if you do believe, if you find, despite your hardness of heart, despite your doubts and the disordered nature of your mind in a disordered world, if you find that the light has come through and you can see Jesus for who he is, that you can do what the disciples did on the boat and bow down and say, truly, you are the living God, then you are blessed beyond imagining. Because this has not been revealed to you by men, as, Peter, as Jesus will say to Peter in chapter 16, but by God. You've been rescued. You're part of the new creation. And nothing can ever take that away. So what I lead us in prayer, and you'll see a prayer that I'm going to pray, printed on the bottom of the sheet. And whether you've prayed this before or this is the first time, let me invite you to pray and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know I do not deserve to enter your kingdom because of my spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. Please open my eyes so I might see the compassion and power of Jesus in his death on the cross for my forgiveness and live forever in your kingdom, praising you with a humble, thankful heart. Amen.